0: Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I wonder what kind of movies do you like watching? Uh, Well, one of the particular types of movies that I'm not a huge fan of is romantic comedies. Uh, But there is one rom-com that really stands in my mind that I remember at the time having a particular impact on me. Yeah, 25 years ago, a long time ago, one of the biggest uh, films of that year, starring Cuba Gooding Jr., René Zellweger, and Tom Cruise, was, of course, Jerry Maguire. And there's one line from that film that particularly stood out for me at the time. Uh, At the climax of the movie, as René and Tom finally get together, he says these famous words, I love you, you complete me. Boom, there it is. And I remember as a young 19-year-old, those had a massive impact on me. It was intoxicating, that idea. And I guess that for all of us, that Hollywood dream is seductive, isn't it? That we might not quite use that language... But the dream that all of our longings, all of our desires, all of our dreams are tied up with one person. It's intoxicating. Well, today, as we continue our human series, we're taking a deep breath. Because today, we're diving into the whole subject of sex. And as we get into it, we'll discover that those words from Jerry Maguire, you complete me are actually devastatingly far from the truth. And as we get into this, I think there's a posture that we might want to adopt. Uh, In the New Testament in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's some famous words that are often read at weddings about love. But actually, Paul, the author, wrote those words not particularly focused on romance, but actually to the church. And this is what he says If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but if I do not have love, I gain nothing. What Paul is saying is this. If I've got the right views, but without love, it's just empty. If you've got all this sorted in your head, but don't have love, it's empty. If you can speak the very words of God, but don't have love, You're nothing, says Paul. And so with that posture, as we thought last week, of acceptance without agreement, of compassion without condition, we dive into this subject this morning. And if you weren't able to watch the talk from last week, can I encourage you to do so? Because some foundations were laid last week about Adam and Eve, our first parents, that kind of roll on to this week. Because at the heart of what the Bible thinks of sex is good news, both because of what sex is and because of what sex isn't. And if we get this right this morning, if I get this right, we'll discover that sex is good news for every single one of us. And so the first thing uh, that we'll discover in the Bible is this, that sex is a big deal. So often, I think the church has been seen as being anti-sex, and as if the only perspective people hear from Christians is what people shouldn't do. But that isn't the biggest emphasis that the Bible gives. The Bible actually points to sex as being more special more precious, more important than so often the church and even society has made it to be. It is a much bigger deal. You see, in the reading that we heard a few minutes ago, we get a glimpse of the relationship between our first parents. And in that context, we've got an immediate description of sex and marriage. Let me read it again. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There are truths here that Jesus picks up later on, and actually, weddings all across the world still reflect on. Because what's noticeable is that the very first words from humans' lips is a poem of love. In the original language, what's going on is is basically all of these different animals have been brought before Adam, and none of them were suitable helpers, we read. And then he finally says, at last, this one is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The suitable companion is here at last overflowing with praise there she is entirely the same entirely different and in that relationship there are three dimensions we read they form a new family unit because the man leaves his father and mother we read there's a public commitment he's united to his wife and then there's sex one flesh And so at the very heart and the very start of humanity, sex is on the agenda as a central part of the committed relationship between the man and the woman, which we today, all around the world, refer to as marriage. And the rest of the Bible builds on that importance of sex. Now, I don't know about your experience as you were growing up, but I remember being at school on the day that we were given out some Bibles from the Gideons. Now, we were in a school in year year seven, aged 11. We were all given a Gideon New Testament. And I remember in our art class, just after we'd been given it, because people knew I went to church, what were we doing? We were flicking through this New Testament, trying to find the bits about sex. And we were reading through, look, there it is. And hey, isn't this funny? Because actually, the Bible doesn't shy away from the beauty, the power, the preciousness of sex. In fact, an entire book of the Bible, Song of Songs, is devoted to it that was considered so erotic that teenage Jewish boys were not allowed to read it. Now, I wonder if we've forgotten that in our society I saw a picture of a bumper sticker on a car the other day that said these words Your body may be a temple, but mine's an amusement park. And in recent years, a number of writers have reflected on different views of sex in our society. On the one hand, you've got those who are a bit more conservative, and therefore they would think of bodies as being a temple, sacred, need to be careful, don't touch. And on the other hand, those who perhaps are more liberally minded uh, think of our bodies as a playground for enjoyment, for pleasure. Fill your boots. But I wonder if the Bible draws attention to both. The body is a temple, and so sex does need to be protected, as we'll see, because of how powerful it is. But also sex is to be enjoyed. You can't read the book of Song of Songs and think that the Bible is down on sex. I encourage you, after this, go and read Song of Songs, chapter 4 through to 8. The Bible celebrates sex and beauty and pleasure. And interestingly, in the Song of Songs, it empowers both men and women, which was hugely radical in the day. But because it is so powerful, there is a safe, and healthy context for it. Our bodies are not just playgrounds. And don't we know that to be true? We know that when we're damaged, when we're hurt by sex, it's not the same as just grazing our knee. Deep wounds. The author, Timothy Keller, highlights this. Let me read to you what he says. In the Roman world, sex was merely an appetite. Its purpose was to serve the social order. Married women could could not have sex with anyone but their husbands. But men, even married ones, could have sex with any man, any female they wanted, as long as it was with someone of less honour or a lower class. Christianity's revolutionary teaching changed this because the sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent and it made sex not about self-fulfillment, which always privileges those with more power but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. The Christian view, he says, requires sex to always be super consensual, only for people ready to give their whole lives to each other. In a sense, the Bible knows there's no such thing as safe sex, only safe people. Sex is powerful and precious, and so needs protecting, not just momentary pleasure. And a few years ago, uh, the author Douglas Copeland, in his famous book, Generation X, said these words, I began to wonder if sex was really just an excuse to look deeply into another human being's eyes. There is a sense that all we really want is to be loved and accepted for who we are. And that's why the Bible describes it as one flesh. There's a togetherness in sex that is way deeper than just a fleeting, pleasurable transaction. Interestingly, in November last year, uh, a well-known author, Heather O'Neill, who's a kind of secular feminist, caused a bit of a Twitter storm when she tweeted the following. Let me read it to you. If you have sex with someone knowing full well it's going to be a one-time thing but the other person believes they're embarking on a relationship, I don't think you can really consider that consensual. What she was highlighting is that we all know that sex is more than just pleasure. And some of us, and some of you watching this morning, will know that all too deeply because of what has happened to you, what has happened in your relationships, or even what's happening now. I read something from uh, Rachel Mander, who grew up in our church. Uh, And this is what she said in a fascinating blog post. She says this, If sex is understood as a form of play and self-expression, it is at its fullest within a context of belonging. This belonging is about mutual commitment and faithfulness, which in the Christian context is signified by marriage. The Bible and our experience tells us that sex is so powerful It's potent. The damaging power of getting it wrong gets to the very core of who we are. And yet in the context of a mutual, loving, committed relationship, it is dynamite. Which is why, in Genesis, they're linked together with that public commitment, united, and then one flesh. So sex is a big deal. But the second thing is this. Sex is not that big a deal because on the other, one hand maybe we've underestimated the power of sex and we know the experience of that sometimes but on the other hand maybe we've overestimated it too I, I mean sex is everywhere isn't it used to sell to entertain to titillate to entice to abuse and I wonder if a statue in Piccadilly Circus in London is sort of a parable for our culture In Piccadilly Circus, there's this famous statue that's a bit of a tourist attraction. And it's popularly known as Eros, the Greek god of sexual love, where we get our word erotic from. But in reality, the statue isn't Eros at all. It's actually Anteros, that is the Greek god for selfless love. Perhaps that's a bit of a parable for our culture that we elevate everything to be about sex. And we've made a gift into a sort of God. I mentioned earlier about the sexual language in the Bible. And one particularly powerful passage is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. And I read it the other day and I found it deeply moving. It's a description of God in relationship with his people and how they've gone away from him. And the language is overtly sexual and graphic. And yet we read these words. God says to them, you engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you weren't satisfied. There's a sense that we know that to be true. Just listen to some statistics about our society today. Less people are having sex and less regularly. Do you know that? And not just during the pandemic. 35% of all internet downloads is pornography. Pornography sites get more internet traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. I think C.S. Lewis brilliantly summed this up when he used a very provocative picture and image. He tells a story of, imagine going to a foreign country... And when you get there, you go to this theatre and there's a group of people gathering around the stage and onto this stage is brought a plate of food. And as the plate of food comes, everyone's, yeah, woo And then slowly and seductively, the lid from the plate of food is lifted off and the crowd goes crazy. And he said these words, you would not think that that society has a good relationship with food. You'd think that they're starving. And his point is clear. Have we turned sex into a god? You complete me. And I wonder, for many of us, we know the experience of that. That we just left wanting more. And it's only let us down. And I think it can be summarised by a powerful cartoon from a French cartoonist called Marion Foyal. It's an amazing uh, picture of five kind of moments in a romantic relationship. At the beginning, you've got the woman drawing this idealised picture of her partner. And it's amazing, her response is just kissing and roses, fantastic. And then suddenly, from behind this drawing, the real partner appears. And all her dreams go crashing to the ground and she's left with reality rather than fantasy. And she's disappointed and heartbroken. We have all got an idealised, romanticised view of sex and romance. And the reality has left us aching. The atheist uh, philosopher Alain de Botton says this in a book about marriage. Fascinating. He says, The facts of life have deformed all our natures. No one among us has come through unscathed, he says. In a secret corner of our mind, we picture a lover who will anticipate our needs, read our hearts, act selflessly, and make everything better. It sounds romantic, he says, yet it is a blueprint for disaster. Wow. What he's saying is that we so often have placed a responsibility on sex and relationships that they can't bear. We so often believe that if we just find that right person or that right experience, all will be well. And so we go searching from the next to the next to the next. Or we simply long for more or better or compare to what we think others might be doing. Or if we aren't getting that, we believe somehow that we're missing out. And so it becomes self-despair. And so much of what we've believed is that sex is what you need to be having to be fully human. Our culture has linked up the idea of the action with identity. And we've left a string of broken hearts and broken lives because somehow they feel subhuman because it's not quite what they think it should be compared to the dream. But we forget that central to the Bible is a figure that is the model of humanity, perfect in every way, and yet was never in a romantic relationship, never had sex, never had children, Jesus confronts the idea that sex is that big a deal. As one author who is gay and who's chosen celibacy because of his Christian faith said, Celibacy represents a challenge to the idea that one must be married or have sex to be fulfilled. And it's a profound affirmation of the gospel. And can I apologize here? Because I'm not sure it's just society that has elevated sex to the idea of a God worth living for. I wonder if we as the church have sometimes over-promised over-elevated marriage and sex and undervalued singleness. Perhaps the church, with a right desire to put sex in a healthy, safe context, have over-promised. Just hang on until you're married, then all your problems will go away. And in the process, we've left a string of broken hearts, unhealthy expectations causing devastating pain and, shame. and can I say in this context, I want to celebrate those in our church family who are single and because of your faith in Jesus, you cling on despite your own desires, despite immense pressure from society, immense pressure from your friends or even family. Can I say in as gentle a way as possible, I wonder in historical terms that we'll look back to you guys as the heroes of this moment, who have a prophetic voice to both society and to the church that Jesus is enough. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. And it might not be what you choose, but you falteringly, with failings, keep on trying your best to put Jesus at the centre. Can I say we have so much to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for teaching us that just like Jesus, sex is not a God worth living for. So sex is a gift, but it isn't salvation. That's the second thing. But there's a third thing, and it's this, that sex is a picture. There's a line in the classic story, Moby Dick, when we read these words, Heaven have mercy on us all, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked and need mending. Because the reality is that in this discussion of sex, all of us are broken, Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. And this ideal picture has been fractured. We've all got this wrong. We all have scars. And over the coming weeks, we're going to unpick that devastation. And next week, we're going to be looking at the whole theme of shame. Do invite friends because it's such a big deal for so many of us. But I think that we so easily forget that the biblical story of sex is actually a picture for us. Because throughout the Bible, you see countless examples of sex going wrong. And I might look look through Genesis alone, and in the book of Genesis, I counted at least 10 examples, 10 stories of relationships and sex going wrong, just in Genesis. We live in a broken, disordered world with broken, disordered lives and hearts. Uh, The author, Jay Stringer, says this. Talking of lust, he said this. Lust exposes your demand to be filled. But if you listen to your lust, it will reveal a holy desire for belonging. The journey out of unwanted sexual behaviour begins by recognising that your struggles may be the most honest dimension of your life. Your sexual struggles reveal your wounds, but they also reveal the trafficked longings of your heart. If you like all beauty... Including sex, are breadcrumbs that point to Christ. Because the way the Bible describes sex gives us all huge hope. In the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, we read some shocking words. Paul says this, talking about this moment in Genesis 2. For this reason, he says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wow. Directly quoting from this moment in Genesis 2, it's not just about Adam and Eve, it's about something way bigger, way more important. That when we look at Jesus, we have someone who is the same and different and fully devoted to us. Gave his all for us. Fully committed. Talk about selfless love. And so in sex, we have, if you like, a graphic parable of that love. Sex models, if you like. What Jesus has done, complete vulnerable self-sacrifice for the other. Literally giving over yourself for the other. Which, by the way, is why it's so painful when a husband or a wife demands it or manipulates it. Because the Bible talks of sex and sexual language in a way talks of God's commitment to us. He's so committed to us, despite our brokenness and shame, that he's like that faithful spouse, complete selfless love. And friends, that's the kind of church we want to be for each other. Complete love for all, modelling something of God's love for us. As I come to a close... The author Ed Shaw, in his profound book Purposeful Sexuality, that I've mentioned on the blog, puts it like this Why has God made you a sexual being? To torture you slowly as you struggle to express your sexuality in the right way? No. You have a sexuality so that He can best communicate to you the full intensity of His love for you, so that you can better appreciate how He can't take His eyes off you. Friends, regardless of your past, regardless of your present, regardless of your future, he is 100% committed to you. And so we turn our longing for more, our longing for better, our longing for wholeness, our longing to belong towards the one who has wide open arms and says, come away with me, I complete you. That is good news for all of us. Whoever we are, friends, whatever our pain, He is for you with wide open arms. So I'm going to pray. And wherever you are, you may find it helpful to close your eyes because I'm aware that for so many of us, there are so many wounds. And I'm simply going to ask that God, by his spirit, would show us something of his amazing love for you right now. So let's be still. And in the stillness, let me pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your amazing love. And I pray right now for those watching this who have deep wounds. God, would you bring healing and hope and wholeness. Thank you for the dignity, the value you see in them. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you bring peace and hope. Thank you that in our longing, we catch a glimpse of your desire for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.